my first morning sermon for many years. And um, I've been thinking a lot. This morning I woke up and went to put my usual jeans and Sunday garb on. And Anya came and had a little word in my ear. She said, you're preaching today. She said, you need to dress up smart. Um, I think she's just sick of me wearing my old hoodie and my old jeans every day. So I made a minor effort to look smart today. Does it matter? Does it matter? Does it matter? Of course it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how the word of God is preached, how the preacher is dressed when he preaches the word. But I thought about this. This is important, isn't it? This is important because I'm not just giving you a theological lecture this morning. I'm not just standing up here batting around nice ideas for you to go and chew over over your Sunday roast this afternoon. This is the word of God. And I am a herald of the word of God. Not that I have any authority, but I am bringing to you what God says. And if I'm speaking what the word of God is saying accurately, then this is God speaking to you, speaking to your hearts. And you ought to listen. And by the grace of God, I will be heard. Because I am a herald. I have that responsibility and that privilege to bring you the word. You know, for some of you, this may be the only chance you have to hear a presentation of the gospel. Clearly. I pray that it will be clear this morning. Do you have any idea how much I've wrestled to get this word? For days and days on my knees, with great torment in my soul, wrestling to get this. Every device has come against me to stop me preaching this. You might think, what is the big deal? Why is it so difficult to get up there for 20 minutes, half an hour, and bring a word? This is spiritual. This is the word of God. This is the message which saves people. And the devil hates it. And he would do anything to stop you from hearing this and stop me from preaching this. You know, I am so aware of my own weaknesses. I am just, I am nothing special. And every time I come to preach, I feel this crushing weight of fear. I am useless. I can't preach the word of God. I haven't been to Bible college. I barely finished university. Everything I've done, I've always fallen short in my life. I'm not a gifted speaker. I'm not trained in any way. Praise God for that, because if anything good does come this morning, it will be not because of me, but because of God's Holy Spirit doing the work in your hearts, in my heart. Chris asked me to speak about what does the cross of Jesus Christ mean for us. Please, Anya, turn to the first slide. It's the only slide, actually. In Rome, in 1857, some graffiti was found on the wall. It says this. This is it. Alexamenos sebatai teon. Alexamenos worships his God. This was made 200 years after Jesus died and went back to heaven. And this is probably the oldest known picture, depiction of Jesus that we know about. And it is a blasphemous picture. You can see there's a donkey head of a man on a cross being crucified. And a little bloke next to him with his hand up worshipping this God. And this was probably made by somebody who was a Roman soldier about his colleague, another soldier, called Alexamenos. And he's mocking Alexamenos because he believes in a God who was crucified on a cross. Actually, next to it, there's a little comment somebody else has added, Alexamenos Fidelis, Alexamenos is faithful. And it's quite possible that Alexamenos himself came and added that later on. But there, my friends, you see the contrast, don't you, between the two people, the two kinds of people who look at the cross of Jesus Christ. 
There are some for whom this is utter foolishness, weakness and stupidity. It's absurd. A saviour who was crucified on a cross. What an object of scorn. What a mockery. And yet there are for some people, some people who, for whom this is such a powerful and blessed thing that they would worship this saviour who died on a cross. For Christians, there is nothing more glorious than the cross. So this morning, perhaps you think, well, I'm a Christian. I've heard this a thousand times before. Time and time again, for years and years, I've heard about the cross. Let me tell you this morning, you will consider that cross for all eternity in heaven. The magnificence, the riches of God's grace to you, expressed first and foremost in the cross of Jesus Christ. Don't let it become commonplace. Don't let it become tedious. This is life to you if you are a Christian. We're going to explore this today. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. A look at verse 17. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. Corinth was a very wicked city, very immoral, full of people that had good ideas about the way the world should be. It was cosmopolitan. In other words, it was very much like Brighton. And the church there was very weak and divided. There were all kinds of factions and people were following different men and leaders in the church. And Paul is keen that people should not follow him or should not boast about men. But he's keen that they should boast in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says this, verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. I want you to notice two things about this verse. First and foremost, the proclamation of a message is important. Okay? And central to that message is the cross of Jesus Christ. Those two things go hand in hand. You can't separate them. The message of the gospel, the good news, and the cross, those two things are inextricably linked. You cannot separate them. Okay? And there is a message to be proclaimed when the gospel is preached. Nobody is going to be saved without hearing that message. Not one single person in the whole world. The first surprising statement that Paul makes here is that the cross of Christ has power. He says here, I don't want to preach using words of human wisdom, lest in case the the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. How does something so weak and so apparently foolish, a man dying on a tree 2,000 years ago, how can that be wise? How can that have power? Isn't it a perfect example, an epitome of weakness, failure? But he says, no, this has power. And the second surprising thing is that there is a danger that this power can be taken away. You know, the Greeks lived in a very, very high and exalted culture. They were masters at wisdom and philosophy and rhetoric. They loved batting around ideas and talking about the latest philosophies. They prided themselves on that. Even today, sometimes you go to Greece, you can see the pride that Greek people have in their culture and their history, their ideas. And Paul could have gone there and said, they'll never believe this foolish message of the cross. They'll never believe it. What I'm going to do, I'm going to use my vast knowledge and wisdom to dress up this message. 
to speak clever words, to use philosophy to try and engage people. I could do that. That way they'll listen to me. They won't listen to this silly story about the cross. But there's a danger in that, isn't it? There's a danger that all this rhetoric, all this philosophy that Paul could have used could have utterly swamped the message of the word of God, of the cross. You know, friends, you will meet people in your life, your lives. You'll meet people who are concerned about talking about ideas and talking about different philosophies. When you bring them to the cross of Christ, they're not interested. They don't want to know. I I meet time and time again down London Road on a Tuesday. I talk to people and I try to bring them back to the cross. Julia will say the same thing. I bring them back to the cross of Jesus. I don't want to know about the cross of Jesus. I want to talk about all these kind of side issues and stuff like that. It's a nightmare to try and bring them back to the word, to the cross, the central thing of Christianity. That is a sad thing to do. That deprives the cross of Christ of its power. And secondly, there's another danger as well, that Paul, if he had employed this philosophy and these kind of lofty ideas and tried to win people that way, he would have won converts to him, but not to Jesus Christ. Do you see that? You know, if you resort to human, carnal, worldly methods to try to win people, You will win them to you, sure enough. You will fill your church with carnal, unconverted people. But they will not be saved. They will not be born again. No change will have happened inside in the heart where the change ought to happen. And Paul would not have that. So Paul, who was a very learned man, he had more brains in his little finger than I have in my whole head. You know what Paul did? He laid aside his wisdom. He laid aside his great learning and he said... I resolve to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Look at 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2. That's what he says there. I read it again. I resolve to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So we see, friends, don't we, that Paul's message focused on Christ. Christ crucified, not just Christ, but Christ who had died on the cross and had risen from the dead. Look at 1 Corinthians 2, verse 4 and 5, a few verses on. This gives me great hope, friends. This gives me great hope. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Now, I want you to notice a few things about these verses, okay? The first thing is, is that it's essential that the Holy Spirit does a work to bring about salvation, okay? He says this, I'm not going to come to you with wise and persuasive words. I'm not going to come and try and tickle your ears and try and dazzle you with my oratory and my skills of speaking. I'm going to come to you and preach this simple message with fear and trembling, I'm going to preach Christ crucified. And by the grace of God, the Spirit will work and his power will be evident and lives will be changed by this simple message. Notice this as well. When the Spirit of God is moving amongst people, unsaved people, you don't see funny stuff, you don't see people falling over, you don't see all this kinds of weird stuff going on. What you do see is lives changed. You see hearts changed. You see conviction of sin. You see people concerned about their spiritual condition. And you see change. And if there is no change in a person's life, they can profess Christ all they like. But if there is no change 
or little change, that is a sure sign and that person is not converted by the Spirit of God. When the Spirit of God comes, he comes in power. And that power is change. Godliness, desire for the things of Christ. The one whom we hated, Jesus Christ, we now esteem and worship more than anybody else in the whole universe. That is the sign that the Spirit of God is working in someone's heart. And this simple message is so foolish and weak to the unbelieving world that if anybody at all is saved by it, if anybody is moved by it, it's evidence of the power of God working in someone's heart. Because nobody could be saved by this message if God were not at work. So friends, this is encouraging for us as Christians. It's encouraging for me. The salvation of a soul, of a sinner, does not depend on our efforts. Yes, of course we read the Bible. Yes, we study. I've studied this week and I've studied and I'll keep on studying. But the word of God can do its work. It doesn't depend on us. You can have the best Bible teacher here in the whole world. You can have someone who's very gifted at communicating. But unless the spirit of God is working in him, using him, using the preaching of the word, nothing will be achieved for the kingdom of God. Okay, it's a great leveler. We're all the same. A weak man like me or John MacArthur, whoever it might be, Tim Keller, all these men, their success depends on the work of the Spirit of God. That's encouraging for us, isn't it? We pray, we pray that the Spirit would work. It doesn't depend on us. We can't do some kind of magic trick to try and make people Christians. We can't convince people. I could talk till the cows come home and would not convince a sinner unless the Spirit of God were working in his heart. You know, my, my friend Charles Spurgeon, like me, son of Essex, you know what happened to him? You know how he got converted? The greatest preacher this country has ever known, probably. Spurgeon, one day as a boy, troubled about his sin, walked into a church in Colchester, Artillery Street Chapel, and it was a snowstorm, and he couldn't, the main preacher couldn't get to the church that day. There was some, I think he was a cobbler or a shoemaker, had to stand in for the main preacher. And this man, he wasn't a competent preacher. He, he you know, spoke his best, he did his best. You know what? As he preached, very simply, stuttering probably with his country accent, you know what? The Holy Spirit came on that boy's heart. And he went out of there and he felt his heart warmed. And he felt that he knew that moment, he knew he was a Christian, that his sins had been washed away by Jesus. God can use simple men and women to preach his gospel. The best of men are just tools in God's hands. Not by might, nor by power, but by spirit. But by my spirit, says the Lord. That humbles great preachers. That lifts up weak, unworthy preachers. We can do nothing of worth without him, so let us pray. Now let me say this. Paul was a learned man, and Paul did try to persuade people. But he didn't rely on his powers of persuasion. He didn't rely on his oratory. You know, we see at times Paul engaging with the philosophers in Athens and other places. He does speak to them on their level. He tries to engage with their worldview, and there is a place for that in the Christian life. I'm very thankful for some men who are apologists, people who give answers for the Christian faith. I'm grateful for men like C.S. Lewis, Francis Schaeffer, and many others who have the gift of kind of engaging with the intellectual world, with thinking people. And praise God for them. At the end of the day, it comes down to the cross of Jesus Christ and the power of God working in someone's lives. 
Once, when I was living in London, I went to Tooting to a church. They had a debate between some Muslims and some Christian speakers. It was probably the most boring evening of my life. Um, Two groups, um, learned men who'd read, studied Islam and were experts in the Christian world on that religion. They debated for about an hour with some Muslims about the Quran, the finer points of some kind of... um, Quranic expert and was he right about this translation there was nothing about the cross whatsoever now it was a noble thing to do and I respect those men for doing that but what did it achieve nobody's going to be won by their arguments nobody's going to come there and say oh I'm a Muslim now and I've heard these good arguments about the Quran so I'm going to I'm going to turn away from my false religion and believe in Jesus that's not going to happen I mean God can use that certainly but friends If we use apologetics, we use wisdom, we engage with intellectual people, what we need to remember is that they will not be saved apart from the work of Christ. The preaching of the cross is central. Sometimes you meet Christians who are into this creationism. They kind of study for hours and hours to understand the finer points of science to try and prove that creation was a work of God and not the lie, which is evolution. And that's all very well, and I respect those men for doing that. But it's so easy to get sidetracked, isn't it, on other kinds of issues, to kind of get bogged down in discussions about the age of the earth. Friends, the word of God, I'm not just saying for for a moment we should just preach at people about the cross, but there is, people need to know sooner or later the cross is central. Do you believe or not that God has done this? Let me tell you this as well. The gospel message has never, ever been popular. Sometimes people today, deluded people, think that we can change the gospel message to make it more palatable for our society. But let me tell you this. The gospel message has never, ever been popular. It wasn't popular in Paul's day, and it's not popular now. It's always been foolish. It's universally foolish, and it's still foolish today. So this message that we have of the gospel is still just as relevant as it was. It doesn't need to be repackaged. It needs to be explained. It needs to be taught. But it needs to be proclaimed, boldly proclaimed, with clarity and wisdom. Let me tell you this as well. The reason the unbelieving world does not believe in Jesus is not because it doesn't have all the answers. Coming back to the the Muslim debate or the creationist kind of debate, you can give somebody answer after answer, answer every objection with the best science that you can possibly find. And yet, if the Spirit of God is not working by power, people will not be converted. The reason people do not believe is because their hearts are hardened, because they are radically depraved, wicked, far from God, and do not want to believe unless God does a work in their heart. There's a verse that says, The man without the Spirit does not accept the things which come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. That's in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. People are deaf. People are dead. People are blind. Do you realize how lost people are? how blind people are, how far away they are from God, and how impossible it is for a soul to be saved unless the Spirit of God works through the preaching of his word. That should give us hope. That should motivate us to pray and keep on being faithful because any good that comes is down to God and his mighty work. Now, I want you to look at verse, what verse is it? Verse 23. We preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Gentiles, sorry. Paul makes the cross central to his message. I want to talk a bit more about this. 
It's very important, dear friends, that when Christ is proclaimed, it must be Christ crucified and not just Christ. You would be hard-pressed to find a church in this city which does not claim to preach Christ. But if we were to go to those churches and look at the reality, you would see that's not always the case. Be very careful because some professing Christians deny the biblical meaning of the cross of Christ. They say they believe in the cross, but as Chris said last week, they make it mean something very different. The cross is radical, the cross is offensive, the cross is foolish to the unbelieving world, but it's true. The cross of Jesus Christ is not just Jesus loves you and he died on the cross to show you how much he loves you. The cross of Jesus Christ is not so much Jesus took all that the world had to throw at him and came out victorious. Those two things are true. There's an element of truth in those two things, but it's not just that. It's not just like God loves you and Jesus died on the cross to try and prove it to you somehow. Yes, Jesus died on the cross because he loved us. Absolutely true. But it's far more than that. I want you to understand this morning, the cross of Jesus Christ is a message about a radical salvation plan to rescue a people who are are desperately lost and far from God. The message of the cross is this, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, willingly came to give his life to take the punishment for sinners like you and me, people who have broken God's law, when he was on that cross, something very, very significant happened. It was like a legal transaction between God the Father and God the Son. On that cross, God poured out his judgment, the judgment that you and I deserve for our many sins. He poured it out on his own son. That is what it means by Christ crucified. It's not some kind of, super, you know, some kind of sentimental fairy story. This is reality. This is important, and this is what the Bible says. Isaiah 53, those famous verses, Isaiah chapter 53, the prophecy of Jesus many hundreds of years before he came. I want you to understand this, it's very important. It's talking about the Lord Jesus. Isaiah 53, 4 to 6. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Iniquities is another word for sin. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So when Jesus died on that cross, he became a substitute. He became a curse. And God poured out all his judgment on his own son. Christ willingly did that because he loved his people. He knew it was the only way to bring us back to God. And that is what the church should be preaching. That is what the Bible says. That's what Christians have always believed. And that is the heart of Christianity. But so many people today deny that, even in the professing church. They would not believe in a Christ crucified. They like Christ the miracle worker. They like Christ as a life coach. They like Christ as a kind of guru walking around giving good advice. But Christ crucified, that's something different. If you are a true Christian today, you will see nothing strange in this. You will glory in this. You say, thank you, Lord Jesus, that you love me enough to be a substitute, to take the wrath of God for me so that I wouldn't have to. But this is controversial. Let me read to you a message that 
an Anglican bishop, Geoffrey John, said in 2007, he found this message of the cross offensive. He said, why should God forgive us through punishing somebody else? It was worse than illogical. It was insane. It made God sound like a psychopath. If any human being behaved like this, we would say he was a monster. Well, I haven't changed my mind since. That explanation of the cross just doesn't work, work, but sadly it's one that's all too often preached. So said the heretic. If Geoffrey John is listening to this, I preach this this morning. I will preach that cross time and time again, that message of Jesus Christ taking the punishment for me, being my substitute, redeeming me, becoming a sacrificial lamb on that cross. Because that's the only thing that can save me. That's the only thing that can take my sin away. I don't need a moral example. I need a saviour. We all need a saviour. Without the cross of Jesus, without Christ crucified, there is no grace. Because God has just given us something we deserve. There's no repentance. There's no urgency in evangelism. Why preach urgently to lost people if the cross is just a moral example to help us show us how we can be better people? And if there's no cross, there is no message to proclaim and defend. There's no truth to uphold. It doesn't really matter what you believe. And of course, there is no salvation either. You've got a powerless, spineless, useless gospel being preached in churches up and down the land today, if you can call it preaching. Let me say this to you. Some people, this, this astounds me, people join churches because of the music, because they like the building, because they have programs and stuff going on even because they've got friendly people. Perhaps you're here today because you like the friendliness of Calvary Church. But if you go to a church and the gospel is not clearly presented and preached, Christ crucified, salvation in his name alone, if you do not, the church does not preach that, does it matter about the music? Does it matter about the building? Does it matter about the high-flying people, the beautiful people? Does it matter if the gospel is not preached? The question is, you, you ought to ask when you join a church, is how do they preach the cross? Do they, are they faithful to the word of God, the whole word of God? And do they preach Christ and make it central? You know, friends, what should draw you to a church is the preaching of the word, the gospel. That's for non-Christians and for Christians. If you're a Christian, you need the gospel as well. Along with the evidence of love, of that gospel changing lives. When you come to a church, you should see the power of God at work. People's lives, as I said, changed. Love for the brethren. Love for the lost. Concern about the souls of men. Concern for the truth. If those things are there in the church, that should draw us to that church. That is a biblical church. Of course, when churches lose the cross, what do they do? They use carnal, worldly methods to get people through the doors. And then when the day of trouble comes, like the house on the sand, they all fall away. Because... Christ crucified is not preached. Let me say this to you. Worldliness in a church, carnality, worldly behavior, is evidence that the power of God is not there. It's evidence the Holy Spirit is not there, and it's evidence the gospel is not preached. Because it says in verse 24, this is the power of God, 1 Corinthians 1. When you join a church, ask them a few questions about what they believe. It's not, it's not rocket science. Go to a church and ask people, what do you believe? Pin them down. It shouldn't be vague. If they're vague about the fundamentals of the gospel, they're useless. This is life-changing. This is the message. This is the message of Christianity. This is the message that saves people. Why are people vague about it? The Bible's not vague about it. The Bible's very straightforward. Believe it. Preach it. 
Don't obscure it with your worldly methods to try and bring people in. Paul refused to do that. So should we. Talk to the leaders of that church, the people that open the word of God. Do they believe it? Do they uphold it? And if not, run a mile from that place and never go back. You may be sure the spirit of God is not there. The acid test. Do they believe the the cross to be wise or foolish? If people believe the cross is foolish, if they'd rather not talk about it, they'd rather talk about other stuff instead, peripheral stuff. If the, the cross is there but somewhere in the background, never mentioned. If hell and judgment and sin are not spoken of. That church does not believe in the biblical gospel. And let me say this to you as well. This message of the cross is becoming increasingly unpopular in today. And let me say this as well. I'm no prophet, but I can tell you this. The way things are going, the people that will persecute us in the future will not just be the unbelieving world, but it will be professing Christians who do not believe this message. And they will pin us down as bigots, and heretics because we insist no it's not one message of many this is the message that saves people the cross of Jesus Christ I will not compromise on that I will not say there are many ways to God no there is one way to God Jesus Christ and him crucified believe it or perish if we preach so called foolish gospel the world will think, think us foolish as well be prepared to be thought foolish some of you know this very well your own families think you're an idiot think you're a fool, you've lost your head because you're a Christian. Live with it. Christ was thought foolish as well. That's why he went to the cross. Now listen, friends. Calvary Church is at a crucial point in our history. We're looking to appoint an assistant pastor. Very exciting time for the church, but a crucial time. How important it is that we find a man who will preach the cross of Jesus Christ, the biblical gospel. Many men have started out on this road and have seemed to be Okay, and then after a few years they depart gradually and drift away from this. Listen friends, we don't need to resort to pragmatism to try and fill our church. Let me tell you this as well, a church of five old ladies meeting in a school hall can be more successful and more beloved of God than a massive church which doesn't preach the gospel. Those old ladies are faithful and love the word of God. Don't be ashamed to belong to a small church. Don't think, oh our church isn't glamorous, We're not boasting in our church, we boast in Jesus Christ, we boast in the cross. But it doesn't matter how big our church is, it doesn't matter how flash we are. We're not trying to impress people by all these carnal things, it doesn't matter. We preach the word of God, we preach Christ crucified, we preach the biblical gospel. And God himself will do his work amongst people. Now, let me say this, go back to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. Now this this will, will send a shiver down your spine for some people. Verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This very divisive message makes it clear there are two types of people in the world. And let me say this there are two types of people in this room today. There are those who are perishing, according to the Bible, and there are those who are being saved. I could take this room up and I could divide this room up in many ways. We could divide people by nationality or by gender. But you know what? There's a far more important division going on in this room. It's already here. It's an invisible division. Jesus tells a story about the wheat and the weeds which grow together. They look exactly the same, but there's a fundamental difference between those two entities. And at the harvest time, at the end of the age, those two things will be separated permanently and visibly. 
But there is a division here in this room between those who are saved or being saved and those who are perishing. Even that concept seems foolish to some of you. You think, perishing? I'm not perishing. I'm sitting here in Brighton on a Sunday morning. The sun is shining. How am I perishing? But friends, if you are not a believer here today, you are heading for a lost eternity. You are heading for the judgment of God. You are heading for his wrath, which you, you and I both deserve. And when you hear this message today, this gospel, if you reject it today, it will compound your judgment. And on the day of judgment, you will hear this gospel coming back to you, these words. That's why I say it's so serious preaching this message. It might be the only time you, you have to hear it. Don't let your heart be hardened by it. The evidence today, whether you're perishing or being saved, is your attitude to the cross of Christ. Because it says here clearly, for those who are perishing, this is foolishness. And if you find the cross of Jesus Christ foolish, that's a sure sign that you are perishing. Now listen, if you are perishing, it doesn't mean you have to perish. Because while you've got breath in your body, there's always a chance to turn to God and have your sins dealt with. But at the moment, you are on that path. Some people find it foolish in different ways. Some people find it completely incomprehensible. They don't understand the gospel. It just sounds like a load of gibberish. Some people scoff at it. And some people simply remain unmoved by it. You could be here today. You could say, well, I don't really mind the cross of Christ. I don't really mind the Christian gospel. I'm not against it. But friends, if you are not for it, you haven't embraced it, if it hasn't changed your life, you are against it. You find it foolish. Okay? I want you to understand that today. Don't go away thinking, well, I'm kind of ambivalent towards it. That makes it okay. It's not. You're either for it or you're against it. You find it foolish or you find it wise and powerful. Look at verse 22. Paul here gives some examples of people, types of people who are perishing. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. So the Jewish people in Paul's day, they believed that they had the gospel. Not the gospel, they believed they had the word of God. They did have the word of God. They believed they had the Old, the Old Testament, all the answers, the prophets. And indeed they had those things. And they, they had this idea that whenever a new idea came to them, they had to have kind of proof, miracles, and things to kind of show this to be true. That's what they demanded from Paul. Show us a miracle. The Pharisees demanded the same thing of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. The Greeks didn't want to hear about this man on a cross. They wanted to hear about philosophical ideas and rhetoric and lofty things. You know, for the Jews, my friends, the cross was an absolutely horrific symbol. And the notion, the idea of the Son of God being crucified on that cross was stomach-churningly sickening. We look at the cross today... And as Chris said last week, it's become sanitized, a symbol. But we might as well put an electric chair or a gallows up there, because that's what it was. The cross was a brutal instrument of torture. It was sickening. And for a Jewish person, the idea that somebody hung on a tree, nailed on that cross, could be a saviour, was the most blasphemous, ridiculous idea they'd ever heard. And the Greeks thought it was foolishness, as I said, You mean to say that all this wisdom and learning is meaningless? Salvation can be found in the death of a man who died on a Roman cross. Just like people today, all false religions in this world devise their own ways of salvation. The Jews thought they had their own way of salvation. The Greeks believed in their philosophy. 
If you go to the mosque on Friday, try this out for size. Go to the mosque and ask Muslims what they believe about the cross of Christ. I know because I speak to Muslims. Very friendly people in some cases, not all of them, but most of them. It's absolutely ridiculous, the cross of Christ. How can you say to me that God is a trinity? How can you say to me that God sent his son to die on a cross, a shameful death? And how can this cross save me? It's ridiculous. I don't need the cross. I don't need someone to pay for my sins. How can somebody pay for my sins? I can pay for my own sins, thank you very much. I'll pull out my socks, try better, ask God to let me off, and God will just let me off. We don't need an atonement. We don't need someone to pay the price. That's what Muslims believe. Go to Sussex University this afternoon, the University of Sussex. Go up there and start talking about the cross of Christ. You will be hounded out of that place, most probably. The cross offends human pride. It's repulsive and absurd. It's bigoted. It's old-fashioned. It's medieval. Hell and judgment. Who wants to hear about that? We have this kind of godless utopia. We can build. We can answer all humanity's problems by our own efforts, by our own wisdom. And it's also exclusive, as I said earlier, to say that this is the only way to be right with God. Your religion has done so much harm, that's caused so many wars in the world. You'll hear it time and time again, all the usual objections. It's too simplistic. It doesn't deal with the problems the world faces. Brighton is full of people like that. Poor, lost, perishing people who are so in love, enthralled by their own wisdom. They're so blinded to the cross. Look at this in verse 20. Paul lists various experts who believe they have all the answers to the world's problems. Where is the wise man? Where is the, where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? He's talking about people who are trained in Greek rhetoric, Jewish scholars who know the, the Old Testament like the backs of their hands, professional debaters, people who love just to get up there and talk about ideas all day, say, we're searching for the truth, but none of us really knows the truth. You know what, what's radical about Christianity? Is that we stand up there, we say, we, we don't have one truth of many. We don't say that your opinion is as valid as mine. We say, no, we have the truth. We've found it. And that is radical. And that is offensive. You know, look at this in verse 21. Since in the wisdom of God, the world for its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Through its wisdom, the world did not know God. All man's clever schemes, all man's wisdom could not bring him to God, could not save him. False religion, humanism, nothing works. Imagine, friends, if we had to come up with a plan of salvation. I gave you, got you into little groups, churches love to do that, get into little groups of, of five. Come up with your own plan of salvation. What would you come up with? No doubt it would be something very complicated, based on human efforts, and hopeless, wouldn't save us. Look at this in, in verse 19. A quotation from Isaiah 29. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. It's always been God's policy to expose human wisdom for what it is. Absolute folly. And God always brings down the proud and exalts the humble. And God loves to make fools of people who are idolaters because they put pride in their own intellect and cleverness and wisdom but God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached the cross of Jesus to save those who believe not the wise and powerful of this world it doesn't depend on how clever you are but the ones he has chosen to be saved God was pleased through the foolishness it pleased God it was God's will this should happen this way 
to save those who believe. It's not the wise who are saved. It's not the, the exalted ones of this world, but those who believe. Can anybody say here today, I can't believe? Even a child could believe. And yet the only thing that's stopping you believing if you're not a Christian is your pride, your stubbornness, because you don't want to submit and bow the knee to God. It seems foolish to you, unless God does a mighty work in your heart and makes you a new creature, a new creation in him. Look at verse 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. When I was younger, I used to believe this verse meant that somehow God had a kind of foolish element to him, a foolish aspect of his character, but that's far from the truth. What this is saying, this verse, is that God's apparently foolish plan to save people through the death of Jesus Christ, a substitution for the sins of people, is wiser, far wiser than anything the world can devise or come up with. All the collective wisdom of all the ages could not come up with such a wise plan as this. And I think as Christians this morning, we should say, thank you, God, for your wisdom. This is so profound. This is so glorious. I want to behold this, look at this for all eternity, and thank you, Lord, for this. For your foolish plan in the world's eyes that is so wise, so profound, and so powerful. Look at this in verse 24. I talked about one group of people, the perishing this morning, and now the good news. Verse 24. To those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. He's talking about the saved, those who are being saved. I want you to notice this. To those whom God has called. God doesn't call everyone. God calls his people. And if you are a Christian, it's because God has called you. He's called you by name. He's set his heart upon you before all eternity to be his child. You had nothing to do with it. Yes, you had to respond to the preaching of the gospel, but you only responded because the Holy Spirit was working in your heart, making you see these foolish things to be wise. All the glory goes to God, not to us. Sometimes people believe it's all down to us, our decision. If it's, if it's just a human decision, then we can use manipulation to try and manipulate people. Beautiful music, rhetoric, it doesn't depend on that. It's a simple message preached and God will do his work. Verse 25. The foolish plan to save people is wise. Look at this in verse 24 again. No matter how, what their objections may be, their worldviews, Jews and Greeks who had so many objections and wisdom, demanded miracles, demanded all this kind of stuff, God has saved them. God has taken a people for himself out of these two groups of people. So I want you to realise today, it's the same message for everybody. For the university student, for the homeless person on the street, it's the same message. It doesn't matter what place you occupy in society, your nationality, your background, whether you be a high flyer, whether you be intelligent, the message is the same. For Jews and Greeks, for all of us, for atheists, for Muslims, for Catholics, for men in the, the Amazonian jungle, for Ukrainians, the message is the same. <laughs> She doesn't mind. The message is the same. God calls people from all those different things by the power of the preaching of the gospel to be his people, his holy people. And that is good news. Notice that God, as I said, God, God takes the initiative. God is the one who calls people. God is the one who saves people. The proof of this is that only by the power of God could somebody be saved by such a foolish message. 
We know it's not foolish, but it's foolish to the world. When the Holy Spirit works in someone's heart, the stumbling block for the Jews, this objection to a crucified Messiah is taken away, demolished, and the Messiah is seen as the power of God and the wisdom of God. And to Greeks, people who are full of their own self-importance and wisdom, for people like that, it suddenly becomes not a foolish message, but the wisest thing that could possibly ever be preached. Because the cross, although it looks like defeat, is actually victory. It looks like it's about weakness, it's actually about strength. It looks like it's about shame, it's actually about glory. It looks like it's about death, it actually means life. That's what the cross means for those who believe. The power and wisdom of God. God often shames the wise of this world by choosing the most unlikely people to be his. God doesn't choose the brightest and the best. He chooses those who believe because that's his prerogative, divine, sovereign grace. Just to finish up, look at verses 26 to 29. I haven't got time to deal with this in detail. But the Corinthian Christians were living proof that salvation does not depend on anything in man. Most of them were unremarkable in the eyes of the world. They were slaves. They were nobodies. What does he say about them here? Lowly things of this world, despised things. People looked down on them. Wise people had no time for them. They weren't powerful. They were weak. They weren't influential. They weren't noble. But God loved them and God chose them. Perhaps the people a bit like us. And God said, actually, I'm going to shame the wise of this world by making the very fools of this world understand this great wisdom because it comes from me, this understanding. Now, hear this. I want everyone to hear this very clearly. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into the world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. What he's saying there is that when, Jesus, when the cross is preached, it's a, a big division between people. That those who think they see actually become blind. And yet those who are blind are actually given sight, the ability to understand and see who Christ is. It's a great level, as I said earlier. It doesn't matter how wise you are in the world's eyes. You can be, you can be I don't know, some president, some celebrity. You can be, you know, doctor of philosophy at Sussex University. It doesn't matter how wise you are. You have to come to a point where you say, none of that matters. It doesn't matter at all. What matters is the cross of Christ. I have nothing to boast in whatsoever. Let he who boasts, boast in the Lord. That God has done a work. Here's another verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Do not deceive yourselves. If any, any of you thinks you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. It's saying a similar thing. If you think you are wise, if you boast in your cleverness, your career, your success, what you need to do is become a fool. Come to that cross of Jesus and say, I am a fool. Will you save me? Repent and believe the gospel. And if you do that, God will fill your heart with his wisdom and help you to understand. You won't understand everything, but you will understand. This is the cross. Tell me more about this, this saviour. Tell me more about this gospel. It is beautiful. It's precious to me. It's not just nonsense. Jesus said the same thing. Matthew 18. He said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
This is repentance. Becoming like a little child. Laying aside your objections. Coming, simply saying, I don't understand. Please, will you help me? I'm sorry for my sin. Will you wash me clean? Make me a new creation. So if you're not a Christian here today, is there a sense, when you hear the gospel being preached, is there a sense that the cross of Christ is beginning to make some kind of sense to you? Once you thought it foolish, now you're starting to understand why it's so important. Do you feel a concern about your spiritual condition? Is there evidence in your life of awakening and change? Can you see, can you feel something changing within you, drawing you to Jesus Christ? If there is, it may be evidence that God is calling you. What you need to do is lay aside your wisdom and believe. Just to finish up, I want to read you verse 30. It's because of him, because of Jesus, that you, because of God, that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us our wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's because of God that we are in Christ Jesus. Without him, we would all be lost in worldly wisdom, and we would consider the cross to be foolish. This is what the Bible calls grace, that God has made us see. And nobody can boast except in the Lord and in the cross. Righteousness, holiness, and redemption, these enormous privileges, being right with God, being holy, being made holy by sanctification. All these things are the rights of a Christian. Hard won at the cross of Jesus Christ. That's why the gospel is so important. That's why we need to preach it. Because without the gospel, you will never, ever obtain these things. And if you are unremarkable and weak in the world's eyes, hold up your head high because you have been chosen by God. You have found favour with him. May we be a church that preaches Christ crucified. May we be a church that glories in the cross. May we be a church that boasts in the Lord. May we be a church that trusts God to use the proclamation of his word to rescue people, perishing people and save them. And all for his glory. It won't make us popular. It will make us more enemies than friends. But it is the truth. And that's how we be faithful to God. Let's pray. Lord, please take the preaching of your word, however weakly I put it across. I pray, Lord, that you would take this and speak to us today. Pray for those who do not yet know you, that you would work in their hearts graciously to bring them to a place of salvation, being saved and not being lost. Pray for each of us who are Christians, Lord, we would glory in the Lord Jesus and the gospel. We thank you, Lord, for saving us, for calling us, for making us yours. Please help us to be truly grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.